it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we're going to do a bird's eye view. We're going to take a bear case versus a bull case for Visa. We're going to talk about some of the reasons why you could buy the company and maybe some of the reasons why you shouldn't buy the company. Fair notice, Andrew and I both own the company. So this will be a, a fun conversation about a company we both are pretty familiar with. So Andrew, do you want to go ahead and take the, I guess, first bullish case? So they have crazy network effects. And basically what that means, a network effect means the more people that are in the network, the more valuable the network gets. To me, the simplest way to think about it is like a social media network like Instagram or Facebook. The more people that are on the platform, the better the platform is because you're getting the best content. And you see that in payments as well with Visa and MasterCard. So the more people that have a Visa card, the more merchants want to accept Visa. The more merchants accept Visa, the more you want to have a Visa card. And I know that sounds kind of like, well, duh, because today, at least in the United States, Visa and MasterCard are everywhere, but that wasn't always the case. And so you can imagine how inconvenient if you have a card that is not taken by a merchant because there's no network. So just by having that network effect in place, what makes it so Powerful is the fact that it gets more power as it grows, but it also makes it very hard to replicate because why would I go on your little five-person network if I can just go on Visa? So you can see how it's very hard for somebody to come in and take that network away. Yeah, exactly. And it creates this moat around the company because they have that network effect. And think about the other part of it too is they have to do no advertising because if you walk into a store or let's say that you know, a bus stops at a place at a store and there's 75 people and they all have visa cards and that store doesn't accept visa, then they've lost out on all those sales. And so that gives the company more encouragement, the merchant to carry, to be allow visa cards to be processed at their store. And that's why a company like visa has such a strong mode is because everybody wants to accept visa because everybody has a Visa logo in their pocket or on their phone or whatever app or wallet that they're using to pay for things. And so that just creates this 
growing network and they don't have to do any advertising for it. Everybody knows the word Visa. When you accept payments, you have to accept Visa because if you don't, you're cutting off, depending on the region, 50 to 90% of all the people that are going to walk into your store to buy something. So that's a huge benefit for the company. Yeah. So bull case, you would say network effect. Yeah. Gives it a strong vote. Yeah. So what would be a counterbalancing bear case? Well, I think one of the bear cases for that kind of network effect is the regulatory backlash against the company. So because Visa is such a large company, and I'm going to lump MasterCard in here as well, even though we're mostly focusing on Visa, those companies have are getting a lot of attention for regulatory reasons because the governments of the world feel that Visa and MasterCard have too much power over those networks. And because they are so large and have such a big moat, there's a lot of fear that they control the pricing of the interchange fees. And that's sort of true and sort of not true. The reason why it's sort of true is they are the ones that dictate the rates to the merchants, but the people that benefit the most from the merchants are actually the banks. So the card that we have in our pocket that has a Visa logo on it is not a Visa card. The Visa is just a token or a gateway that enables payments to be processed. But the Bank of America card that we have linked to our account is actually those are the people that benefit from the fees that we're talking about. And so governments around the world, in Australia and Europe particularly, have felt that those fees were too high and they have put started putting caps on those fees to try to help merchants because the merchants are the ones that pay those fees. Now, we will when we buy things because the merchants have to take that into account when we go to buy my Coke Zero at the store. They have to factor that interchange rate into what they charge us because that's what they receive less of the money. So when we pay $2 for a soda at the store, the 7-Eleven that I'm buying it from doesn't receive $2. They get $1.97 because of the rates that are charged. And so the governments around the world feel like that is too much of a monopoly. And so they're trying to lessen Visa's ability to charge rates that they feel are fair. So I'd love for you to address that risk, but kind of first before like diving into all this, like let's say I was looking at a different company. Say I don't pretend I'm not like interested in Visa and I'm just trying to make a bull or bear case for another company. These are pretty in-depth conclusions after studying a company for a long time. So how would somebody start to build a bull or bear case for any company that they're looking at, you know, whether it's in payments or it's in retail. How would somebody even start to know like, ooh, the biggest competitive advantage is a network effect or ooh, the biggest risk is government intervention. How does somebody get from, I don't know anything about this company to, ooh, I can start building a list for a bull or bear case? Ooh, that's a great question. For me, for, I guess, learning about different companies is reading through the financials. We talked a few weeks ago about the 10K for Google and kind of gave a brief walkthrough of how you would look at a company. And in the 10K, there is a risk section that outline in general some of the specific risks that different companies face. And so when I'm analyzing a company, that's one of the first places I would look 
to give me a good sense of what kind of potential risks a company would face. And Visa's risks are outlined all right there in the 10K. And these are kinds of things that you will discover. And of course, as you read more about different companies, you'll gather more information from different sources, whether it's blog posts or whether it's you know financial media or listening to podcasts, you'll discover lots of information. But for me, it all starts with the financial reports with the 10K because that's where I would learn, in particular, the bear case, the potential downsides to an investing in a company like Visa. And Visa has, like you said, this great network effects, but it has these regulatory effects which are outlined in detail. And I won't go into all the nitty gritty of that. But overall, that can impact the revenue of the company. And that's where the risk comes in for a company like Visa as it could impact their revenues and because they generate revenues from fees and those fees that they charge for usage of their network, if they're reduced, then their revenues are reduced. That's perfect. So we want to establish a bear case. We go through the risk factors in a company's annual report and hopefully they've listed out some of the big ones. So now we're on bear case number one. Just when you throw the word government in, that can get kind of scary. Mm -hmm. So it's probably different for every company. So in this case, like, how do you address that risk, discomfort as an investor? What's the next step after like saying, okay, I got to figure out if this risk is manageable or if it could affect my investment down the road? For me, it's in particular, if I'm looking at Visa, I looked for other experts that talk about the company that I could do some research or read through what they've written about the company to try to assess the risk of what the company is presenting. Every company is going to have different risks that they're going to face. And one of the biggest challenges is trying to figure out how could the company negate this risk. And for Visa, the regulatory environment could be potentially disruptive to the company but by reading through what the other experts have said about the company it some of it is encouraging and some of it's not encouraging and then i just have to think about what i think the likelihood of those risks coming true are or are not and it comes down to probabilities and it comes down to what your experience tells you about a particular company. And you may not understand all the risks and that's part of the investment and that's part of learning and digging deeper into those risks to uncover that. Charlie Munger, one of our favorite investors, he always talks about inverting, you know, invert, always invert. And one of the ideas that I think Andrew has taken really well to heart is trying to think of all the downsides to investing in a company and then working backwards from there to see how those things could play out or not. And I like the framework that he uses for that. And that's one of the things that I thought about when investing in Visa is, you know, what, how likely are some of these risks going to come to pass and how much are they going to impact the business? And in Visa's case, for example, the regulatory concerns in Europe and Australia have already gone into effect and the company is still growing revenues. And so that tells me that maybe some of these risks are overblown or maybe aren't quite as severe as the company is presenting them. We always have to remember that lawyers are the ones that write a lot of the the legal jargon in a 10K, and their job is to protect us from the downside or protect the company from the downside. And so that's one of the ways you can kind of confirm or not is by just looking at the results if some of these things have already come to pass. And that's what I've done with Visa. And so that helps me kind of lessen this risk in my humble opinion. 
Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Which kind of goes to the second bullish case, which I'd love for you to share about basically how they generate their revenue. Because yes, the risk of government intervention is scary but like you said if you understand how the company generates revenue then certain government regulations could affect that or could not Mm -hmm. so to get to a place where you can even make a decision like that you have to learn how does visa make their revenue and your bullish case number two is it's actually not on loans or anything like that it's something Mm -hmm. completely different yeah, it's completely different. And a lot of people mistake Visa and MasterCard. They mistake them as credit cards. They're actually not a credit card company. They're a logo. They're basically a business that allows merchants and banks to connect over the internet to accept payments digitally. And so that's how money will move from the 7-Eleven to Bank of America back to 7-Eleven is through the rails that Visa has created. And they generate revenue from the fees that they charge to process those transactions. So they don't have the same credit risk that a credit card would. So like Capital One or American Express, for example. American Express is a bit of a hybrid, so let's not confuse matters. But Credit One is 
a credit card. And so they carry debt on their, it's like a bank. They, when you use your credit card, that's debt. And if you default on that debt, that's a risk for Capital One. Visa doesn't have any of that. They were almost entirely a tollway. So they help provide security and they help provide securitization and verification that, you know, I, Dave Ahern at a 7-Eleven buying a Coke Zero. And when it goes to my Ally bank account, the Ally knows that, hey, they trust that Visa has verified me so that they give the money to 7-Eleven. It's not going to some nefarious place for my $2. And so that's really what Visa does. And they collect a very small percentage. It's about, I think, seven less than seven-tenths of a percent of each transaction. And that's how they make their money. And so that, to me, is a huge bonus for the company because they don't have credit risk like banks do. They don't have credit risk like credit cards do. And it's also because of their network and their the large network they have, you have to use Visa. And so because of that, even though they generate such small margins on each transaction, but the fact that they transact, I'm going to butcher the numbers, but let's say $20 trillion, it probably in the ballpark, transactions yearly. That's a lot of transactions. And, you know, at seven tenths of a cent, that adds up to 22, 24 billion in revenue that they generate annually. So that's how they make money. And I think that's a bullish case on how they make money. And it's one of the ways that I personally got okay with not only just the regulatory risk, but some of the other risks is you do think of it as that toll booth that's enabling payments to happen. So sure, you know, the government could say, hey, Visa has a smaller slice. They're going to regulate that to be smaller, but they're not going to like completely wipe out a business like Visa or MasterCard. If they make regulation too tight and they put these card networks out of business, it would be chaos. So the big thing for Visa, yes, we don't know where margins will go for the next five or 10 years, but are they going to stay around in 10 years and process payments for people. And if they do that and they're processing more payments, then that's going to make the company more valuable in 10 years than less. So as long as I'm confident that they will process more payments in 10 years because they will continue to provide that service for people, then I'm okay with any risk that might come between, oh no, we're getting you know 0.7 instead of 0.6%. Like whatever. It changes the value and it changes the profit. But if you're a long-term investor, you can look past a lot of that uncertainty and make a judgment call for yourself. And that's the beauty of evaluating a moat. It's because it makes the decision-making a lot easier versus, oh my goodness, how am I going to predict where the company's cash flows are in three years? That's not something that you can do for a lot of businesses. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. No, it's not. All right. Let's talk about another, I guess, bearish case for the company. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, and that's the rise of crypto. So what are your thoughts on the rise of crypto as a bearish case for a company like Visa? Yeah, I guess it's less of an elephant now with everything that's happened in 2022. I feel like we've touched on it before. And you know, I don't know how to address this case Again, unless you understand how the business operates. So for me, one of the things that I learned about Visa, which I had not known about unless I had really looked hard at the inside the annual report, is that they spend 
billions, billions, like I think it was 9 billion, one of the most recent years. And this is for a company with like 20 billion in sales. So this is huge investments that they have to make. And they spend that money to basically secure the accounts that they have. So whether that's payments to JP Morgan as an example. And and all these things go towards helping with fraud and helping if not Dave Ahern's using Dave Ahern's card to buy 200 Coke Zeros. <laughs> Dave Ahern doesn't have to pay for that, but somebody does. And so Visa spends a lot of money on the security aspect. They also spend money on fraud and making you whole if you have your card stolen. And so the money that they spend either directly or indirectly through money that flows to the banks, that gets covered when you do payments. The big rub on crypto, which maybe not all crypto, let's say Bitcoin as an example, because Bitcoin has been talked about as the big payment replacer. The big feature for Bitcoin is that you can't make that transaction reversible. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's once it's done, it's done and you can't reverse it. And so... While that might work for certain use cases, it's hard to put that on a big scale and think about how can how can that work for everyday consumers. Well, when I when I sign up for a bank account, I just want to make sure that my card works when I want it to work, and that somebody can't steal everything that's in my bank account. And that's what Visa offers. And so Bitcoin does not have something like that. And so to me. I saw that the the centralization of Visa and the fact that Visa and the banks are going to stand up for you in case somebody steals from you, that makes that irreplaceable versus something that's decentralized and there's nobody advocating for you if you get your card stolen or your money stolen. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great example of kind of thinking beyond just the air quote elephant in the room and the possible disruption is think about the use case of what crypto is offering at this time versus what we have now and how that could impact Visa. And if you think about the know your customer and the verification and the security, all those things are things that if you read a little bit about crypto are things that you're hearing and seeing that they're struggling with. They know that those are problems that they need to overcome for this technology to be widely adopted and accepted and it isn't there yet and so that's one of the things that even though it's a potential risk down the road that right now it's not there and the people in the crypto world know this they're working to try to fix it but there's also the people that are i guess in the fiat world the way we conduct business now that realize that that's one of their advantages and they keep doubling down on that The other thing that I like about what Visa is doing to kind of offset this potential disruption to their business somewhere down the road is they're working with the people that are creating crypto to try to enable payments on their network as it is now. And they will continue to invest to help adopt these kinds of traits if that becomes something that they're that's going to be used, you know, on a global scale. And so instead of just ignoring it or poo-pooing it or just not accepting that this could be something to change, they're actually embracing it and trying to step into it to see how they can use their business to make, you know, how this they can use this to make their business better as opposed to, you know, ending it completely. So at this point, we don't know, nobody knows what will happen. But I think that's one of the things that I like about what Visa is doing, you know, even though this is a bearish case, it's for me, it's one of the ways that I feel like they're 
offsetting this potential risk over time. All right. Well, let's move on to, I guess, the third kind of bullish case of the company. Let's talk about cash. <laughs> One of the things that I guess Visa is benefiting from and will continue to benefit from is that the use of cash is dwindling. And and that's not just here in the United States. That's kind of a global thing. And if you look kind of across the world, you're seeing less and less people that have access to cash and are moving money over the internet with the rise of wallets in our phones and with the rise of internet banking and e-commerce and all those kinds of things, just the use of cards is just, you know, exploding. The pandemic really kind of exploded a transition that was already starting to happen. And so I think Visa will benefit from this over the long period. And it was something, if I remember correctly, that right near the top of the 10K management talked about this as a bullish case. So it wasn't something that you just had to magically know. Like, I don't think about how other people pay for their stuff all too often. (laughs) (laughs) But management knows about it. And they have statistics showing all of these things. And they put it in the 10K. And with a lot of companies that I look at when I'm researching, they will put what those exciting trends are. They will put them at the top. So you don't have to look all that hard. And... If it's not always clear, sometimes that means there might not be a great reason to buy a company. So I would say for a bull case like this, sometimes you can just get it straight from management and they can tell you. And if it makes sense right away, it's probably a good idea to to continue down. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, I agree. All right. So that's a bullish case. I guess what's an opposite bearish case for the kind of the same side of the less usage of cash globally? So I guess you have the bear case of things getting too digital and some other players like governments making their own digital payment system. Mm -hmm. So how do you look at that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something that has been in the works for a little while and in countries outside of the United States has been embraced much more than we have here. In Brazil, they have PICS. In India, they have UPI, I believe it is. Africa is developing their own payments rail, if you will. And the United States, they've had Zelle for a while, which has been fairly well adopted, but they, the Fed now has been working on something which is a digital payments source that they're going to go live with in 2023. And there's potential that this could bypass Visa to make payments and not just to each other, but also to businesses and from businesses to other businesses and vice versa. And that's the way it's being used in Brazil, for example, is that the PIX network acts as a way for businesses and people and merchants to pay each other over a network and it bypasses Visa. And so then they would not be able to generate any fees from using that rail. And in India, for example, that has been something that has really been embraced, especially for debit cards, is that they have a UPI, which is a federal payments rail, which excludes Visa from taking any payments. Now, the credit cards are still run on the Visa rails, but the other payments are not. That's a potential risk. And as that continues to be embraced, that could be something that could impact Visa you know, in the long term. I guess the question in that case, I feel kind of goes to the whole big idea with their moat is would the banks opt to choose a FedNow option versus choosing Visa or MasterCard? Because the way I've always looked at the business model once I learned about it is all the power is with the consumer. Whatever the consumers have, the businesses will accept 
as long as enough people have visa cards, then businesses will say, well, I got to accept visa. Mm-hmm. So where do the customers get their visa cards? They get them from the banks. So the question becomes this digital threat, at least in the United States, I'm talking very United States centric because for visa right. in particular, they do a majority from US, whereas MasterCard's more global. So you, you kind of have to put yourselves in the shoes of the bank. Are they going to, outside of some overarching legislation that says you have to use Fed now, are they going to choose whatever benefits Fed now does versus the good relationship they have with Visa or MasterCard? I don't know that I have that answer. Really, the only commentary that I've seen about the potential with Fed now in particular is they're not entirely sure that the general population will embrace it. And that's, I guess, the Fed now has not really been advertised much outside of the you know the payments geek world. It's not really a well-known entity at this point. And so there's not a lot of confidence that it's going to be embraced. And there's also been a lot of discussion about how, you know, economics matter. And if the banks can't make as much money from the Fed now as they can from the other ways of making payments, they may not be encouraging it either. And so it's unclear at this point how much it's going to be embraced. You have to think about the way I look at it is when I think about Brazil and India they have a larger population that is unbanked or was unbanked than the United States. And so the adoption of a payments, a digital payments network is a lot easier because when you've put a phone in somebody's hand for the first time and tell them this is the way that you can move your money, whether it's buying stuff or sending money to people or paying your bills, they're going to go, okay, great. And they're going to use it. And then there's going to be no questions asked, but you know, here in the United States, where I guess population of unbanked is much smaller, then there's a lot of other options. And so it's going to be harder to over, you know, the inertia to overcome what we're already doing. It's going to be harder, I think. And so it's certainly a risk for Visa and any payments company. But I think it's going to be, you know, my humble opinion is, is that it's going to have a higher hurdle to overcome here in the United States. The whole rise in India, too, was literally the government saying, okay, do this. This is, we're, we're going to fund this completely. And it doesn't, and, you know, the government's going to completely subsidize that. Yeah. And we just, we have a different political system here. Yep, exactly. So you're kind of seeing this trend, right? We've got how many bull cases? Three bull cases, three bear cases so far? Yep. You've noticed Dave and I have had a rebuttal to every bear case so far. I would kind of caution that if you don't have that, if like one of the beauties of having a bull and bear case is it can be really easy to build up that bull case. Mm -hmm. But if you're not intellectually honest, then you might not build a bear case or you just very lightly dismiss it. But I hope what's coming through clear in this conversation is we've both thought very deeply about the bear cases and what's the other side to the bear case that makes that risk manageable enough for us to want to proceed with the investment. And sometimes the risk is manageable and sometimes it's not. And that's where you have to make tough choices when you're building these kind of checklists or bull or bear case ideas as you're looking for investments. Yeah. One of the things that I read that Charlie Munger said is he looks for reasons not to buy the company. So when he's investigating a business, he's actually looking for reasons why not to buy the company. And I, I remember Charlie or Warren always calls them the abominable no man because Charlie <laughs> always says no to everything. That's his instant reaction to everything is no. 
I think you know what Andrew was just pointing out is the, the best way to think about this. You have to build a bear case and you have to build a bull case and you have to be able to look at both sides and determine what could undo the company because no company is perfect and none of them will last forever. And we all make mistakes. We all think that this could be the greatest thing since peanut butter and it ends up not being the greatest thing since peanut butter. And that's part of building in a margin of safety, frankly is looking at the opposite side of why you want to buy a company is why do you not want to buy the company? And then if you can't dispute those or at least mitigate the risk, then it just becomes less of a margin of safety investing in that business. So that's the way I've always tried to think of it. So, you know, we could build a a list like this until the cows come home. But when you're building a list like this, how do you know kind of where to put just to wrap up the conversation, how do you know when to stop and be like, okay, I feel like I've hit all of the big bull and bear cases? What does that look like for you? Wow. That's a hard question. I think some of it depends on, I'll just speak for me. So for me, a lot of it depends on my comfort level of understanding the business model. And if I feel like I really have a good grasp on what the business does and how they make money and what those moving parts consist of, then I can look at the bear cases for the business and understand how they could impact the profitability of the company. And then I just do a lot of reading to try to make sure that I'm kind of covering my bases. And I I try to look at people that are negative about the company as much as I look at people who are positive about the company because it, it can give you insights that you may not think of. You may think that this is, you know, that Google is the greatest company ever. And then you'll talk about somebody, you'll read something that's super negative about business that are spending too much money and this, that, and the other thing. They may have a nugget in there that gives you pause to go, oh, okay, that's something I didn't consider. And so that's one of the ways that I work through it. And frankly, sometimes you just never get there. There are times where I've looked at businesses and I like everything about it, and but I just keep coming up with more bear cases that, that I can't overcome. And sometimes it's a lack of knowledge on my part on what the business does. Like I just can't quite grasp what the business does. And if, if I can't really wrap my hands around that, then it doesn't matter how bullish or bearish I am on the business it's never really going to be something that's going to fit in my portfolio well because I'm not going to be comfortable with the business and the knowledge that I have about the business. That's how I do it. I'm curious to hear how Sir Andrew does it. Well, I like that last idea you had there of, you know, sometimes you just keep getting bear cases and then you just can't get comfortable with the company because I've totally done that too. And then let an idea sit for like three or six months and then suddenly something can click where you're like, oh, I understand how they're mitigating this risk now. And then it becomes a great investment idea. So I've done that several times. And it's something kind of to keep in mind. There's no perfect answer, obviously, to how much you can know about a business. Like you, I, I have to understand the business model and I have to understand what are the major drivers. I don't know if this is something that Buffett said or who said it, but it's like, if you can't take a 30-second elevator pitch and really boil down the idea to that, then it's too complex. Like You don't completely understand what you're investing in. And so until I've reached that kind of 30-second elevator pitch, I won't invest. And I also like to sleep on things. So I feel like 
getting really excited about the business and then letting your subconscious work on it for a night or two can make things pop up and help cement that, hey, oh, what about this? What about that? Or, oh, that last bear case that was really tricky for me. I understand now why it works. And I think part of it too is I always like hammer. It feels like a heavy hammer by now, but I always hammer like reading the 10K, reading the annual report, looking at the financials, reading the annual reports of competitors, right? But something Charlie Munger has talked about too is this art of worldly wisdom and really trying to just generally increase your knowledge about big concepts and and big ideas. And so whether that comes from history or whether that comes from something even like politics, I think knowledge in different areas can sometimes give you context on some of the bull and bear cases. And there's no you know, one size fits all for all of it because we're all living in this world and and business is constantly changing. But sometimes you can find answers in places that you wouldn't necessarily think of. And to your point of just being comfortable with what you own, I think that that's priority number one. Because when you don't have comfort in what you own, you're going to sell out at the absolute worst times, which is when everybody else is panicking. But if you build a bull and bear case list, and you've already thought about these bear lists, then when you see that bear list on the headline, like, oh, China's doing this or China's doing that, you've already thought through that risk. So you're just like, okay, business as usual, maybe I'll just buy more. And that's how you you do really well in the stock market with stocks holding them for the long term. So that's how I would try to communicate how I think about those things. That's awesome. Can we double click on kind of the idea of the knowledge kind of compounds on itself? You were kind of talking around that. I, I think that's something that I think, you know, I know working with you behind the scenes that there are companies that you come back to, seems like time and time again, but sometimes maybe that business is not one you end up investing in, but ancillary businesses that you study along the way become investments because you learn something about company A that you can apply to company B that maybe you can apply to company C. So can we kind of expand on that for a couple minutes? Yeah, I mean, I think that's perfect. That's the way you presented it. As you go (laughs) down this rabbit hole of knowledge, trying to learn about a company and the bigger you expand that sphere, and that means moving up and down, left and right. So up, who are the companies that are selling to your company? Who are their vendors? Down, who are the distributors that sell to the end customer? left, right? Who are the people who are competing or trying to innovate to make something bigger and better? Those are the places you can look. And as you go down those places, you might find a new idea or you might find clarity on the bull or bear case that you have. So I like the way you know you gave this idea of, hey, let's, let's talk about the bull bear case of Visa. Because if you're picking stocks, I think you really should be doing this kind of a mental model with every stock you look at. You really should. Totally agree. All right, folks. Well, that will wrap up our conversation for this evening. I hope you enjoyed our bird's eye view of the bear case versus the bull case of Visa and the mental model that this can create for you to help you become a better investor. Even if Visa is not a company you're interested at the slightest, you can take this same kind of idea and apply it to literally any other business that you're looking at. And it can help you become a better investor and find great investments. Maybe not necessarily in that company, but other companies as well. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers 
in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.